This morning, uh, we come to a passage of Scripture that is, I think, among the most misunderstood, sometimes misused, misapplied, and even in some cases, weaponized passages in all of the Bible. Today, people who, people who hate God and love their sin memorize a few of these verses, a few of these laws from these next few chapters that we're going to be looking at in order to attempt to heap shame on the heads of Bible-believing Christians. On the other hand, sometimes um, Christians just don't understand the point of these laws that we're going to look at. And so we try to come, to, we try to come up with some some reasons for them that are not in line with the Lord's reasons, reasons that he had, he had for giving these laws. Right at the outset, um, I want to warn you that instead of working through this verse by verse, today we're going to be looking at the themes of several chapters, chapters really 11 through 15. This is something we've We've pretty much been doing this through the book of Leviticus as we've worked through this book. So we're in Leviticus chapter 11. But today especially, we're going to be taking in sort of the big picture of these several chapters, and then we're going to look kind of briefly at chapters 11 and 12. So two chapters in particular that we struggle to understand today, and we struggle to apply to our own lives. So I'm going to start by reading Leviticus chapter 11, but be careful not to let your eyes glaze over as I read this. It's long, and you're going to get the, at least the big picture point of it pretty soon when I start reading. So Leviticus chapter 11. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts of the hoof and whatever parts the hoof and is cloven footed and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. The rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcass. They are unclean to you. These you may eat. All, uh, of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall uh, detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable uh, to you. And these uh, you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, 
the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any, of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects, insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet, with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all the other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water and it shall be unclean until the evening. Then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware, earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it. Any food in it should be, uh, that could be eaten on which the water comes shall be unclean, and all drink that could be drunk from every vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean, whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed ground that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of the carcass falls in it, it is unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms in the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours, whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You there shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. 
This is the law about beasts and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear today. Help us to understand. We believe that this is your word and it is therefore God-breathed. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand that you may be glorified and we may be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So sometimes... um, this entire book, the whole book of Leviticus, is referred to as the, the holiness code for the people of Israel. And these next few chapters, really, um, beginning here in chapter 11 and all the way through chapter 15, they're among the specific passages in Leviticus that speak directly to the areas of life that set the, Leviticus, the, the, um, the Israelites apart from all of the other nations around them in the ancient world. Keep in mind, as we work through this, the big picture of the outline of the book as we have seen it so far. So, just by way of reminder, from the very beginning of the book, all the way, really from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through the middle of chapter 6, The Lord gives people his laws concerning the the specific sacrificial offerings that they were to bring to him. Then from the middle of chapter 6 through chapter 7, he he gives those same laws, um, but he addresses the roles of the priests in handling those same offerings. Chapter 8 is the ordination of the high priest for Aaron and his sons, that is, his descendants after him. And then chapter 9, uh, we read the account of their, official, uh, their first official acts as high priest as the Lord accepts their offering in the presence of all the people. In fact, the final verses of chapter 9 say this, And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. But then we come to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is that chapter in which the priests sin, and God immediately pours out his wrath on them. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So, We have seen the instructions for the offerings and the sacrifices. We've seen the establishment of the priesthood and the punishment of disobedient priests. We've also seen throughout the book, it really, we get a glimpse of this at the end of Exodus, that the Lord is now dwelling. He is tabernacling with his people. People who are nevertheless 
stained by sin. How is that possible? How is it possible that a holy God is now dwelling with people who are sinners? The prophet Habakkuk will say of God's character, he says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy one? You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. See, because man is defiled by sin from conception, he cannot dwell with the holy God. Because we are defiled by sin, we cannot dwell in the presence of the holy God. Because of our sin, we ought to face the same fate as Nadab and Abihu. The fire of God should consume us immediately. But the Lord is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. And he calls us to be ye holy. This holiness that his people are called to, it's not, a, it's not a vague holiness, right? It's not a, oh, behave yourselves, be nice, be good. It's specific. It's a specific holiness. And this whole section, chapters 11 through 15, is introduced, it really is introduced by some of the words, uh, the, the instructions for the priest that we looked at last week. If you, if you look up in chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, just, just listen to this. The Lord is speaking specifically to Aaron. And he says, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the uh, people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. This is what chapters 11 through 15 are doing. They are laying down the the principles for distinguishing between the clean and the unclean, between the holy and the common. In fact, after this section, um, the Lord gives instructions in chapter 16 concerning the, the day of atonement. And listen to his reason for that. In Leviticus 16, verse 16, speaking of the work of the priests in the day of atonement, it says this, Thus he shall, the priest shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. Uncleannesses. Now, in order to understand the themes here, clean and unclean, holy and common, we need, to, we need to understand the definitions of those things, a few distinctions between them, beginning really with what, what the Lord means by clean and unclean, holy and common, okay? Clean and unclean, holy and common. So under, under the law, under the Old Testament law, everything was essentially classified according to really two categories, holy or common, But it was only that which was holy that was permitted to be in the presence of God. And and then everything that was not holy or common included kind of two subcategories, clean and unclean. 
So, so in other words, there couldn't be a person or something that was unclean and also holy. That was impossible. They had to first be clean, then they could become holy. We'll get into that as we work through this. Generally speaking, the normal status of most people and most things even, the normal status was that it was considered to be clean. And it could be elevated to the status of holy through a, through a sacrificial ritual. We saw this in the previous chapters um, uh, where blood was sprinkled on certain things. So those things were set apart as being holy, like the various furniture or utensils in the tabernacle. In order to make them holy, right, blood was sprinkled on them. You might even remember that Aaron was made holy by putting, uh, they put blood on his earlobe, on his thumb, and on his big toe in order to set him apart as being holy. And, and again, that represented that he is to be holy in what he hears, where he goes, and what he does. The high priest of Israel, Aaron, is set apart as holy. So, common things, common people can be made holy, right? Aaron, in himself, was just a man, right? He was, he was Moses' brother. He was just a man. But he was set apart for use in the holy service of the holy God in his holy tabernacle. Now, these, these common, normal people or things could also be downgraded. Not only could they be upgraded to the status of holy from clean, they could also be downgraded to the status of unclean, either through some sort of pollution or through sinfulness. And here's where we need to make uh, sort of this careful distinction of terms. You, you may have noticed that I've, I'm using the word common um, as the opposite of holy, as opposed to saying that something is unholy. I'm doing that because when we, when we hear the word unholy, we automatically tend to think evil or wicked. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, for something or someone to be unholy, it just means that they are common, or a synonym would be normal, Right? Fit for everyday use. That's what it means. Likewise, when we say that something is unclean, more often than not, at least in a, in a religious setting like this, we also think of it as being sinful. But again, that, that's not necessarily the case. So, so let's go a little bit deeper as I, we try to explain these things. Remember Psalm 24, verses 3 to 5. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Clean hands and a pure heart. It's not enough that you are clean, you must also be pure or holy. Let me give you an imperfect example. It's imperfect, okay? Consider the, the plates that we use to serve the communion bread. You've seen them go by, right? You understand what they look like. 
the first thing that we know about those plates is that they are common. They're just chrome plates, or probably chrome-plated plates, right? They're just common. It, it might be weird, but you could use one of them to eat a BLT and some fries from. I'm not suggesting you do, but you could. They're just plates, right? We understand that. Um, we also understand that they are, uh, not only are they common, they're just plates, they're also clean. We can use them to serve the supper with, and no one objects. We didn't just, we didn't just find those plates somewhere. In fact, they weren't the ones that were just in the building when we got here. Okay? We didn't just find them. They're clean. But we can also think of a scenario where they might become unclean. And that uncleanness might involve sin, but it might not. They might simply become polluted from the grease of the bacon and the fries, right? Like any other dirty dishes. But they also might become unclean through some sort of profane use. And I'm not going to give you any examples of that. But you understand what that means. Here, we only use them for the Lord's Supper. And so, in a way, they're set apart. In a way, they have been made holy. This is why it's an imperfect example, though, because we don't have a ceremony where we sprinkle some blood on the plates uh, in the Old Testament sense in order to make them holy, right? We just only use them for that one thing. In fact, we don't, we don't even necessarily have holy and unholy things like that now. But we, we did, however, not that long ago, dedicate this building to the use and service of the Lord recently, which we understand is actually a dedication of ourselves to the use and service of the Lord. In fact, prior to our purchase of this building, it had been used to promote unholy and unclean activities. Now, um, we're using it for a holy purpose to approach our Lord in worship. So don't miss, it's, a, it's an imperfect analogy, thinking of the communion plates, but, but don't miss what we're talking about. So under the Old Testament law, in order for something like those plates, something to be made holy, to be set apart for use in the service of the Lord in his holy tabernacle or later the temple, a Levitical, a Levite priest needed to perform a certain ritual. And under the Old Testament law, the same was true for people. Like the example of a, of a BLT on a communion plate, some things that make people ceremonially unclean are not necessarily sinful. Yet when sin is the reason for their uncleanness, then the ritual that we read of in these several chapters, especially as we go through this, requires confession and it requires a forgiveness as part of the purification process. As you read through these chapters, one of the things you find is that when sin is not involved, so maybe the person was considered unclean because of some disease or some other contamination, 
then the Lord does not require forgiveness. The only requirement was a a washing to make one clean and then a purification service to make them holy again. This is actually the gist of chapter 12. So hold on to chapter 11 for a moment. We're going to come back there. But I want to go now to chapter 12. So I'm going to read this, this one too. You get a bonus today. It's only eight verses. But let me read Leviticus chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall, be, uh, shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And she shall be clean from the flow uh, of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves and two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and one, uh, the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now, I want to make two observations that I believe help explain this chapter, these laws. Before I make those observations, I want you to listen to the curse of Genesis chapter 3, when man and Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, God speaks. And in verse 14, this is just part of the curse, the Lord God said to the serpent, Genesis 3, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now think of that. And this is my first observation from Leviticus chapter 12. The reason... There is a difference in the timing of the ritual between the boys and the girls is because all of Israel was to be eagerly awaiting the offspring, the son who would crush the head of the serpent. This little timing difference, one week versus two weeks, 33 days versus 66 days, that has nothing to do with the patriarchy, that has nothing to do with the degradation of women and girls. Mankind's sin does that enough. This is to remind every single family of Israel with every single birth that God has promised to send the Messiah, His Son, who will once and for all defeat the enemy. And then observation number two. 
the pain of childbirth is there to remind every mother and every dad who's in the room holding her hand, it is to remind every parent that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so this purification process was God's gracious legal requirement for the people of Israel. The sin offering that it mentions here was a purification offering designed to remind them that yes, they're still under the curse, but God covers their sins. And one day, oh Israel, He will send His Son to permanently take away their sins. That's the point of that. It's not about a division. It's not about holding back women at the expense or promoting boys at the expense of girls. It's not about, it's to remind them that there is a son who will come and crush the head of the serpent. Now zoom back out because this, this all goes deeper here. Because typically whatever is unclean is also contagious. It would make the other things and other people likewise unclean. And then additionally, some things like certain foods and and things like mold and mildew that we'll look at um, in chapters 13, 14, and 15, some things are permanently unclean. And so nothing can be done except to avoid them. However, most things were only temporarily made unclean. This happened either through contact with someone or something dead, or through childbirth, like I said, maybe through some sort of disease or sickness, or through sinful activity. And we will get into this in a couple of chapters, like wrongful intercourse. These things were considered unclean because they were not normal and something could be done about them. Now again, childbirth is normal, right? Except it is a it is an abnormal day in the life of any mother. Every mother will tell you that. There are elements of childbirth that are specifically associated with the curse, and therefore, for the ancient Israelites, purification must take place. See, the faithful Israelite under the law, was to strive toward the standard of the holiness of God. And anything, anything which led in any other direction toward sin, toward disease, toward illness, toward defilement, towards contamination, was supposed to be avoided, especially in anticipation of coming into the Lord's sanctuary, of coming into the the tabernacle in worship. However, we all understand that in the normal course of Life, contamination, and defilement of one kind or another is going to happen, right? Frankly, somebody has to move dead bodies, whether it is a person or an animal. Somebody has to take care of that. And God has made a provision for this. And he does so in every major area of life. And that's what we see here in these chapters. God is making a provision. We've already looked briefly at childbirth in chapter 12, so let's go back and talk about these crazy food laws in chapter 11. In fact, the key verse, I believe, of Leviticus chapter 11 are the final verses. Listen again to just those last, uh, verse 45. 
He says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. So remember here, the people of Israel have just come from Egypt and they're at Mount Sinai. They are getting ready to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. And so these dietary laws as a whole, they are designed to prevent them from being influenced by the beliefs of the pagan nations around them and also to preserve them from adopting the wickedness of the Canaanites. This distinctiveness of their food was instrumental in doing this. One of, the, one of the things that we have seen over the past few years at this church um, is that eating together regularly has had a major influence on our love for one another. We come from all, we come from all over the state, right? We drive a ways to get here. Um, we come from many different towns, many different communities and backgrounds even. And, and often, we do, unless we're intentional about this, we don't really bump into each other during the week, unless we try to. But when we sit around a meal out there in the, in the Thunderdome, when we sit around a meal out there, we are able to get to know one another in a more meaningful, a deeper way. This is instrumental for us in, in following the one another commands of the New Testament, sharing that meal together. In fact, I would encourage you, if you never stay for lunch, or if you only sit with your family, I think you're actually missing out. I think it might be the case that you're not all that connected with people in the church. And so I would encourage you to stay next week and have lunch with us. See, close personal friendships are more easily formed over a shared meal. That's how the Lord created us. Close personal friendships are more easily formed over a shared meal. It is far more difficult to develop a relationship with those that you can neither eat nor drink with. How, how much more if you have an actual hatred or if you detest the food that they're eating? This was Daniel's strategy. Daniel chapter 1. When they were hauled into Babylonian captivity, he refused to eat the king's food or drink his wine. It tells us instead he would only eat vegetables because he did not want to be conformed to the Babylonian way. Restrictions on, on food and drink have historically been very effective at keeping different groups of people distinct from one another. But the question that we really need to address here is this, something like this. Why are some of these foods considered clean and others unclean? Clearly, we understand that this was to keep the Israelites and the Gentiles separate, but why these foods? Well, in order to get at this, and I will tell you right now, there's not a complete answer for every type of animal, but in order to get at this, I want to tell you what the Bible does not teach. First, some believe that these are just sort of arbitrary. Um, 
We can read through this on a cursory level, and maybe you did this as I was reading through it, and say, okay, don't eat insects, gotcha. That one's easy. But is there more to this? It's true that God used these dietary laws to teach Israel about holiness and obedience. His reasons are more than just, because I said so. God isn't ever just simply arbitrary. We may not understand his purposes, but he's not just simply arbitrary. Well, secondly, others believe that these specific foods are listed here in order to to actually fight against the cultic worship of the Canaanites. Here's what I mean. We know that some of the plagues, remember that happened just before this in the book of Exodus, some of the plagues that preceded their exodus from Egypt, certain unclean animals were sometimes associated with pagan gods, frogs, for example. But this only explains some of the animals listed here in chapter 11. And Israel actually used many of the same animals in their religious sacrifices and rituals that the Canaanites did. Um, Think of it like this. You go to India and the, uh, the cows are holy, right? They're used in their religious practice. Pra- they're not used like, uh, like we use them. But cows are cows, right? You, you understand what this means? It means that the Lord isn't outlawing certain animals just because somebody else uses it in a, in a profane or um, idolatrous way. So that's not the reason. But one line of thinking that I think is actually more common today is that this was for hygienic purposes. That unclean animals are not good for you. They're more likely to carry disease or some other contamination. But I can give you three reasons why this, this cannot be the case. First, even though this is undoubtedly true in some cases, for some animals, some of them are not, should not be eaten, Right? That's undoubtedly true that some of them are bad for human consumption, but it's not universally true about all of them. Not all unclean animals are harmful, and some harmful animals are not listed here. Secondly, this cannot be true because Scripture never says anything like that. In fact, and this is the third reason, This cannot be true because Jesus later declares all animals to be clean. And so the category of unclean cannot equal is not good for you. Okay? Doesn't mean some of them, doesn't mean they're all good for you. It just means that those two things are not the same. And so when Jesus declared all animals to be clean, he did not mean that all animals were now healthy and nutritious for food. That's not what he was talking about. Likewise, when God says here that certain animals are unclean, he's not saying that they're unhealthy bad, or, or bad for human consumption. So let's look at where Jesus does this. It's Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 16. Turn over there, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day... As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, we need to be clear, and we're going to come back to this next section in just a minute. I'm going to show you this. But those verses are really about the promise of the new covenant being opened even to the Gentiles. That brings us back to what's really going on in Leviticus 11. This is symbolic. All of this is symbolic. Now, we we could take this too far, but I'll give you a couple of examples of what they possibly symbolize. Um, This is the belief that each clean or unclean animal or group category represented or symbolized some concept of a, of a spiritual thing that the Israelites needed constant reminders of. Now, on one hand, I want to be careful to say they really were not to eat of these animals. This was, they were to take this law literally, and they did. But it also was representative of something else. We could really get into the weeds of what each animal represents, and we're not going to do that. Let me just give you a couple of examples of what some people have said. Again, we have to be careful with this because there's a bit of conjecture or guessing involved, but I think there's some good application or at least some thoughts on this. Here's the first example. Those first eight verses of uh, Leviticus 11, they talk about animals that chew their cud. Some have suggested that this was to remind the people of Israel to be constantly meditating on God's law. That if they are raising livestock that is constantly chewing, they would have the image in their mind of chewing on God's word. Maybe, maybe that's what it represents. Another example, uh, others have suggested that the unclean animals that were carnivores or the unclean birds that ate carrion right? Roadkill. Their dirty habits were symbolic of the filth of our iniquity. Again, maybe. But what we can know is what the New Testament said about this. So, Acts chapter 10. I hope you're still there. I'm just going to read a few select sections of verses, paragraphs or whatever, and see if you can catch the theme. I don't want to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read verse, starting in verse 17. Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be their guests. Okay? So a Greek, a Roman, sends men to Peter and says, basically, we want to hear what you've been preaching about. Verse 27, 
And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And it was to hear the preaching. Jump down to verse 33. So I sent for you at once, and have been, you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear what you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jump down to verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that is the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain there for some days. So do you see it? Do you see the connection here? Peter clearly understood that the lifting of the dietary restrictions from Leviticus 11, that meant that salvation was moving to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. The exclusivity of God's chosen people was shifting here in Acts chapter 10. So clearly... Clearly, these dietary restrictions were symbolic of the nature of Israel being a set-apart people. See, see, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were exclusively God's chosen people, but with this vision and with the conversion of the Gentiles as evidenced by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and Peter's eagerness to baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ... Peter is accepting here that not only has God declared all foods clean, he's also truly opened up salvation to all who will call upon his name, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In fact, a little bit later, in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, Peter will testify. He says, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up, said to them, brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their heart by faith. Back in Leviticus chapter 11 There was a clear distinction. There was to be a clear distinction between Jew and Gentile. But in Christ, there is no distinction. Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. 
So for these dietary laws, as far as they are concerned, as well as the the purification laws for after childbirth, they are much like the ceremonial laws of the nation of Israel. They were for a specific time and a specific purpose. They were specifically to anticipate Christ. That's what they were given for. And now that the Son has come, they are fulfilled. He fulfilled them. And so therefore, they're not applicable to us today. Let me finish this morning with a little bit of application for us as Christians. I'm going to be looking carefully in the crockpots next week. We must remember that as Christians, we have been made holy by the blood of Christ. As Christians, we have been made holy by the blood of Christ. And so we have been made into a holy nation. This is an important point for Peter. When he finally got this in that dream, when Cornelius' men came to him and he finally had the courage to walk into the house and preach the gospel to them, understanding that this was the Lord's doing. This was important for Peter. And so he begins his first letter by saying this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Those elect exiles are made holy by the sprinkling of Christ's blood. If you are in Christ, you have been made holy by the blood of Christ. And so there is therefore now no condemnation. That means there is therefore now no uncleanness. No one can undo the work of Christ. You're no longer common. You're no longer normal. You're no longer unclean. Your sin is gone. It's forgiven. And then a little bit later, in chapter 2, Peter writes this. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so as Christians, we are a holy nation. And so we are to live as a holy nation, as a holy people of God. And so your profession of faith, your confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that must be confirmed by the reality of your holy living. Again, Peter says that in the same letter. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, you were unclean. 
He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In fact, we need to understand this. To be free from the regulation of the law is not a license to be free from obeying the law, what the law has revealed. The New Testament makes this clear. In other words, sinful activities that made a person unclean in the Old Testament, those that are sinful, we'll get into this in the next couple of weeks, those that are sinful are still sinful in the New. And they still require repentance and confession and forgiveness. And we are to live as a holy people, set apart and not conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed into Christ-likeness. What was an abomination to God in the Old Testament is still an abomination to Him today. Sins are still sins and require repentance and forgiveness before we are able to truly participate in the worship and service of the Lord. We live in the midst of 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 uncleannesses. We live in the midst of defilement, but we worship and serve a Savior who has defeated sin and death and promises ultimate healing and ultimate cleansing from all unrighteousness. And one day, we will stand before him dressed in white robes, robes of true purity and righteousness, robes that have come from Christ. And so until then, we're called to eat this bread and drink this cup and so proclaim his death until he comes. Pray with me. Father, on one hand, these laws are really easy to understand. Things that shall not be eaten, other things that are okay to eat. But on the other hand, Lord, this is about holiness. And so we are thankful as most, if not all of us in here, we're outside of your covenant promises. We were not Jewish. We were not of the people of Israel. We had no hope and without God in the world. But as we read in Acts chapter 10, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were outside of his people, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And so we come to your table this morning with hearts of thankfulness that we can eat and drink and proclaim the death of Jesus Christ until he comes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.